At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three in one with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non-toxic, non-flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco-friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. Hey, welcome back, guys. So listen, I haven't published a podcast in in a bit, in over a week, because I was at the CMPX show in Toronto last week, and it was just crazy busy. I got four podcast episodes done there, which I will release shortly. So on this podcast, guys, we got Tony First from Armstrong Fluid Technology, and we're going to talk steam, because steam is something that a lot of people don't understand, but it's an incredible way to heat a building it really really is i've seen how well steam can heat a building and how it can actually overheat a building if you don't have the right type of um, actuators on rad so on and so forth but when steam hits a, a cast iron radiator for instance man do you ever get some nice heat off of that so we're going to talk about steam how it's generated how it moves around the building how it gets back to the boiler or the mechanical room in the form of water Okay, so this is a good conversation, guys. Listen up, pay attention. This is the HVAC Know It All podcast. I'm your host, Gary McCready. This podcast is sponsored by The Master Group. And guys, they have in the Toronto area here at their main head office, they got a big training center with a lot of equipment and they hold training sessions there. Just because of COVID, it was shut down. But with COVID looking like it's tailing off a little bit, Hopefully the training center will be back open and we'll, we'll see some training happen there. I'm hoping to get in there and give you guys a tour, but in the meantime, guys, check out master.ca. Welcome to the HVAC Know-It-All podcast. Recorded from a basement somewhere in Toronto, Canada. Your host and HVAC tech, Gary McCready, will take you on a deep dive into the industry discussing all things HVAC. From storytelling to technical discussion. Enjoy the show. Tony, you're back to grace us with your educational presence. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Gary. How you doing tonight, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing really well. I just, uh, it's funny, you are in our pre-conversation there, you brought up Superheat and I just published a video on YouTube about Superheat. So it was kind of fitting, but we're not talking about Superheat tonight. As far as refrigeration goes, we're going to talk about steam and our sort of lead up conversation to this as we were talking about the difference between saturated and superheated steam. And, and, and I think maybe we should start there unless you have another place we should start first to give us an idea of, of what we're going to be talking about here. Steam for the service guy is what we're going to talk about. But you, you start us off with where you think we should start up. Okay, so let's start at kind of the beginning. Okay, let's start in the boiler room. and. We'll work our way out sure. to the end of the system Let's and then do back it. to the boiler room again. That sounds good. Okay. So when we start out in the boiler room, and I'm not going to talk about combustion and combustion controls because we could talk for hours on that stuff. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about making steam inside the boiler. And most boilers, we operate somewhere above zero PSIG. And we can have a steam system operating as little as eight ounces. Okay, so half a PSI mm-hmm. up into the hundreds and thousands, depending on what we're doing with the steam. And at all those different pressure classifications, we are manufacturing saturated steam. Now, when we do that, we're making what's called dry saturated steam. And everybody's like, Dry and saturated. How do those two terms go together? Yeah, exactly. You know, because we think saturated, we think, you know, take a washcloth and you saturate it under the faucet. It's saturated with water, right? And we think saturated air, it's saturated with moisture, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in steam, when we talk about dry saturated steam, the steam is saturated with energy. Okay. So if you remember, your basic, you know, basic 
heating, air conditioning, that one BTU is the amount of energy it takes to heat one pound of water one degree Fahrenheit, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's sensible heat. Well, when we look at steam, okay, and we, you know, we go, you know, we we get water up to 212 degrees and, you know, we've got X number of, you know, got one BTU for every pound of water we got to get from a starting temperature to 212, right? When we go from 212 degree water to 212 degree steam, it takes 970 BTUs to take that pound of water and turn it into a pound of steam. Okay, just a pound of steam volume, not yeah. pressure. Just volume. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, when we do that, that steam contains all of that energy. It's got that 970 BTUs in that one pound box of steam, okay? And the dry part of it is we manufacture steam. We try to manufacture at somewhere between 95 and 98% quality. Okay, and by 95 to 98% quality, what I mean is that 95 to 98% of the water vapor is gone. It's in the steam. It's turned into steam. It's not water anymore. There's always a little bit of water in there. Mm -hmm. So we want that. This is why we use the term dry saturated steam is we really are talking about a dry gas. Okay, we want a little bit of that water there. Because that water helps cause the steam to give up its energy because it's going to coat the inside of pipe walls or the inside of radiators or the inside of coils and create a good heat transfer surface for that steam to give up its energy. Correct. Yes. And so when that steam gives up its energy, it turns back into water. So that same pound of water is now a pound of steam condenses now it's back down to a pound of water again and so and then it goes back to the oil room and we'll talk about what happens as we get out into the steam system so when we look at a boiler as we continue to raise the pressure on the steam okay the steam starts to occupy less and less volume because it's getting compressed so one of the things we do and when we run steam plants we have basically two pressure classifications for steam. Although if you walk into buildings, you see pipe labels that say low pressure steam and medium pressure steam and high pressure steam. There's two pressure classifications for steam systems, low pressure mm-hmm. and high pressure. Low pressure is up to 15 PSIG. Anything over 15 PSIG is high pressure steam. So if you're running at 20 pounds, that's still high pressure steam. And that has more to do with the boiler classification and how the boiler is built and what code the boiler is built to. Okay, whether it's a ASME code section one or an ASME code section four, I believe it is. Don't hold me to that. I'm trying to do that from memory. Um, but code section one, as I know, is, is high-pressure steam boilers or power boilers. So we make dry saturated steam. And we're going to send this dry saturated steam out to the building. And if you notice in a lot of buildings, we make steam at 200 PSIG. And the reason we do that is if I start looking at steam piping, a eight inch steam main at 10 PSIG can transmit so many pounds per hour of steam. If I take that same 8-inch steam main and run the steam pressure at 200 PSIG, I can transmit about 10 times the amount of volume or BTUs in that same pipeline. Okay, so if you think about it, you know, what do we use steam for? Well, a lot of places we use it to heat buildings because we have steam preheat, co- we have steam heating coils and air handlers, really common in 100% outside air handling units because steam doesn't freeze. The water, the condensate will freeze, but the steam itself won't freeze. Yeah, Um, so I want to just bust in there for one second. It's it's funny you brought that up because there is an air handler that I know of that is a steam coil, 100% outside fresh air. And that thing has frozen up a couple of times because there must be, maybe by the time the steam gets to the the end of the coil or something, because it's like the, the very top of the, the coil where these things were freezing 
and busting when it was like, we're talking about frigid temperatures. We're talking about like minus 16, 17, anything below that degrees Celsius. We were having issues where these things were would freeze. So they, they must have been collecting moisture somewhere in that area and popping open. But it's funny you said that because as soon as you said that, I remembered this coil that I've repaired probably three or four times in the last 10 years for freezing up. There's a couple things that come to mind. Okay. So the first one is, are you really sending dry saturated steam to the coil? Yeah. Okay. So that's the first thing that I would look at. The second thing I would look at is, is the coil piped correctly? And is it the right coil for the application? Mm -hmm. Because the way steam coils are built, okay, so the tubes in a steam coil are different than in a water coil. Okay. So a water coil, the tubes sit horizontal and they're dead level. Right. Yep. In a steam coil. So if I'm looking at the air entering side of a steam coil, so I'm looking, staring at the face of the coil and I'm looking at the fins and the steam enters on the left hand side of the coil. Okay. The tubes are pitched upward going from left to right. So at the right end, they're a little bit higher than they are at the left end. And that's so that as that steam condenses in those tubes, it runs, the condensate runs backwards the other direction. And drains out into that header and goes down and hits the trap and drains out of the steam coil. So, first of all, is it the right coil for the application? Is it, a, is it truly a steam coil? Or did somebody do something goofy and put a water coil in there and decide they're going to run steam through it? Well, it was, it, was a, it was a vertically mounted coil. Like the, the, the tubes were vertical inside. Okay. So, if the tubes are vertical, you shouldn't be collecting condensate in the top. This should be all running back down. Yeah, and, and it's funny because that's where the, that's where it kept popping is right at the top. So, <laughs> so one of the things that I'm that I'm thinking in that condition is that either a you're not draining the condensate out. Yeah. Okay. Or, and here's one of the things that boggles people's minds: when you have steam, everybody thinks, okay, if my steam valve is open, I've got whatever my line pressure is. You know, so let's say it's ten pounds steam going to this coil. And let's say I've got, that means I got 10 pounds of steam in the coil, so it'll push condensate out. Well, not necessarily. If it's a modulating steam valve, you're not going to always have 10 pounds in that coil because as the valve closes down and you're controlling the volume of steam going into the coil, your coil could be at near zero PSIG or even sub-atmospheric, so you have negative pressure in the coil. You remember the tricks we did as a kid? You'd take a pop bottle, you fill it up with water, and turn it upside down, and the water would stay in the bottle until you got some air up into the bottle before it let there. Yeah. Same thing happens to condensate in a steam coil. If that steam coil is in a vacuum, it won't drain. It'll just sit there. Yeah. Okay. So there's a thing on steam coils called stall, and that's where you don't have enough steam pressure coming in to overcome the amount of pressure it takes to get the steam or the condensate out of the coil. So this condensate just backs up in the coil and it can back up high enough in those kind of conditions. It could flood that entire coil. You know, I don't know what your conditions are. I don't know what your entering steam pressure is. And I don't know what your condensate piping looks like coming out of the coil, but mm -hmm. those are all things that you have to consider. The other thing is, does your coil have a vacuum breaker on it? So at the very top of the coil, we put a little device on the coil. It looks like an air vent, mm -hmm. but it's not. It opens to allow air into the steam coil. As the pressure starts to go below atmospheric, that thing opens and allows air in. You know, a, an air vent on a hydronic system does just the opposite. When it sees air, it opens and lets the air out. On a steam system, I want to let the air in because I don't want the condensate to stack up in that coil. Ah, uh, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So when we look at steam coils, so we've made steam, we've sent it out to the building. And so let's say we're making steam at 200 pounds. We're going to send it out to the building. Now, we're not going to use it at 200 pounds for most applications. Now, yes, if I'm driving a turbine to turn a centrifugal chiller or to turn a pump or to turn a generator, yes, I'm going to use that full line pressure steam to turn the turbine and, and 
make rotational mechanical energy. Okay. However, in most applications, I don't need 200 pound steam to do the work. Yeah. You know, I may only need five pounds of steam or 10 pounds steam. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what I want to do is I'm going to reduce that pressure. So I'm going to run it through a pressure reducing station of some form or fashion. And there's a whole lot of different kinds of steam pressure reducing stations. There's direct acting, there's direct acting pilot operated. They have a pilot control valve on them that works like any other pressure reducing valve, except it's got a pilot on it and the pilot's what's actually driving the main regulator. And you can get higher turndowns and things like that. And then we can move into the really expensive steam pressure control valves. And it looks just like a regular control valve. Looks like the control valve you'd use for controlling water flow to an air handler for chilled water or hot water. Same kind of valve, a little different trim inside the valve. The cage looks a little bit different. The stem and seat looks a little bit different. But we're controlling steam pressure with that. And that's a much more expensive way to control steam pressure, but they're really, really accurate. So if you want real, if you want high accuracy or you want really, really high turndown, so you're going from 200 pounds down to five pounds, that control valve style will give you that level of accuracy and that high turndown ratio. Okay, let me let me ask you this. So if we have a boiler generating 200 pounds of steam, obviously it's for a reason, but if we're going to reduce it down to five pounds for something, is it mainly because that this boiler is, is serving many different applications within the building? Is that why we're generating such a high amount of pressure off the bat? So there's two reasons we generate high pressure. The first is because we may need a lot of different pressures out in our building. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, we may be using some steam for some direct injection humidification. When in that, I only need five pounds of steam for a humidifier. If I'm in a hospital, I'm going to need steam for sterilization. And typically for sterilizers, they run at 60 to 70 PSIG steam. If I'm making uh, a steam to hot water converter, okay, so I'm, I'm going to use, I'm going to use the shell and tube heat exchanger and I'm going to make hot water for domestic hot water or for heating hot water. I want, you know, I want low pressure steam for that because it's easier to control that low pressure steam than trying to do it with high pressure steam. Because the closer my steam temperature is to my leaving water temperature, it's easier to control because my control valve doesn't have to be so itty bitty. I can get a bigger control valve and greater throw. Kind of like size of an expansion valve for a refrigeration system. If you need an expansion valve for a five ton load, you're not going to use a 50 ton expansion valve, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, it'll work but it's not going to have any throttling range, right? So same thing happens with steam control valves. I want to be able to use the full stroke of that valve in the full throttling range to get accurate control. Okay, so can I bring, I want to bring something up because it, it, were, it pertains to kind of what you were saying about letting the condensate get pushed out of the, of the, of the system. Because I want to bring up something that happened to me. This is going back three or four years ago. It had to do with steam because we're trying to, help the service techs that might go on service calls here. I, I was dealing with a steam boiler and it maintained around, like as you were talking, like half a PSI, just over. It didn't need much more to heat the building. But what had happened is that one side of the building, it stopped heating. So I checked out, I, I kept going down. It was a five-story building. And I, I would go down from the fifth floor fourth, third, second, none of the rads on that side were heating. So I get down to the bottom and I notice that the pipe, the riser going up before the riser goes up, it's involved with a steam trap and the steam trap goes down and then back up. And because the half PSI wasn't enough to push the water out, it was waterlogged. So what, what I did was I just, I cranked the thing up to like four or five PSI. Um, all the pipes started to rattle because it was all the steam was pushing through the water and it cleared it all within like a couple of hours. So what we had to do was run that boiler at, I think 1.2 or 1.3 PSI in order to get past that, that small riser before the main riser where it traps in. So yeah. it, it was just just a bit of a, a thing that that I had to do, and, and and I found that that worked for me. It was just we were running that boiler at just too low, just just a slightly low pressure than than what it was meant to do. 
because right. of and that water being trapped. So yeah, condensate, we, we want condensate to always return by gravity away from a heat exchanger. Mm-hmm. So gravity is our friend. And so when we, we come out of a heat exchanger or a coil, and I, I kind of use the term, I use heat exchanger intermittently with coil, and they mean the same thing. It's whatever device we're going to use to as an emitter to give up heat. So we come out of the coil, and so we've got a pipe coming out of the coil, and we want to drop 12 inches before we go into the inlet of the steam trap. The reason for that is every steam trap known to man takes a half a PSI to overcome the pressure loss in the trap. Okay, now we remember that, you know, one foot of water is 0.433 PSI, right? Yeah, that's that's how we came to the conclusion of what was going on. We just didn't have enough pressure to push that water. So when you came into that trap and then that, that leaving side of that trap went up to get into the riser, essentially what happened was is you had that you created back pressure on that trap. So you had to have enough pressure on the inlet side to overcome the trap pressure and lift that condensate enough up to get out of that line and into that riser. Now there's a couple things you could have done. What what you did worked in you know, raising the steam pressure. However, in doing that, one of the problems that you run into is you raise the steam pressure. You start to play games with the velocity and the steam piping and all that because steam moves extremely fast. Yeah. It moves a whole lot faster than water does in piping. It can move into the thousands of feet per second. Whereas, you know, in, in water piping, where, you know, eight feet per second is a normal velocity. So you can create issues with high velocity in your steam mains. One of the other things that could be going on is you probably had a floating thermostatic trap. And uh, floating thermostatic traps are, by and large, the most common trap on the market. There's also a bellows trap. If you remember on radiators, they got the little... 90 degree brass bellows looking thing on the outlet mm-hmm. side of the, of the radiator. Mm-hmm. That's a bellows trap. And if you take the top off of it, it's just got a little bellows inside there. And that bellows works by temperature. So when it sees live steam hit it, it expands, closes off the trap. And as it starts to see condensate, it cools down. The bellows lifts, lets the condensate drain out. Steam hits, closes it back off again. It's a really, really simple device. Yeah. Okay. F and T traps or floating thermostatic traps, they have two things going on inside there. They have the bellows, okay, that can open and close to let condensate out. But they also have a float in there. They got a ball. Looks just like the ball that's inside a toilet tank. You know, it's just a big metal ball. And the trap fills up with condensate. The ball floats up, opens the valve, condensate flows out, drops, you know, condensate gets done running out. And the ball drops, away we go. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. In that steam trap, there's an orifice in there. And that orifice is sized based on how many pounds per hour of steam or condensate I got to push through there. Okay, so steam's generally, you know, roughly is 1,000 BTUs per pound. So if you know what your heat load is, you can size your steam trap based on what your steam load is, and then you got to add some safety factor in there because you want your trap to be a little bit bigger than what your total coil capacity is. So if your coil capacity is, you know, 100,000 BTUs per hour, you want a trap that's probably 120,000 BTUs, 120,000 pounds per hour, 120 pounds per hour capacity. You want some reserve capacity in there. So it can handle higher load like startup loads as the coils warming up things like that okay so we've talked about the steam and the pressures and how fast it is getting to where it's got to go so once the steam gets in that coil and we create that condensate and, and we're using that that steam to heat a space or whatever we're doing with it we have this condensate that's collecting so where does that condensate go does it have to be reused in the system Is it being discarded? Let's talk about that. Guys, you've heard the spiel before. JV Warranties offers a warranty program outside the manufacturer's warranty when it's over and done with. 
Some customers like this stuff. 14-day turnaround time on claims, very, very quick, and up to $300 an hour in labor reimbursement, which is very, very important. So check them out, guys, if you're in the market for that type of service for your customer. Company Cam is, is a brand that has that grew from startup, and it's, it's growing into quite a, a platform to keep companies organized with images, videos, timestamp, GPS information that's all collected in one place, so there's no need for texting back and forth. There's no need for emailing back and forth and finding all the information in your phone. It's all on the cloud in the one job file on the app or, or the program if you're using it from your PC. It's all there in one place. So check them out for sure. So Testo's coming out with a new scale and I got a, a quick glimpse of it over at the show there last week. And basically what you can do with a scale is it auto charges based on superheat subcooling and target superheat. I, I have to get my hands on this and see how it works. It's just a scale and it's got some sort of auto charging system, which kind of blows my mind. I, I got to check this thing out. And when I get my hands on it, I know you're going to need to see a demo and stuff of how it works, but when I get my hands on one, I will definitely show you guys. One thing that I thought was a very, very cool demo, one of the coolest demos I saw at the show last week was was the fact that you can take a thermal camera and see behind a wall if you have like a, a leaking pipe that has like wet insulation. So Brent Lemert from Hike Micro, he had a basically like a paper towel that was just damp. It wasn't soaked and it was touching the back of a piece of drywall. Sorry guys, I'm losing my voice. I've been talking so much in the last week. It was touching the back of a piece of drywall. The drywall was dry in the front, but the thermal camera could pick up the fact that it was wet on the back with a heat signature telling you that you might have an issue with maybe some some leaking pipes in behind the wall. So basically you can see through a wall with a thermal camera. I thought that was super cool. Okay, so it really depends on what you're doing with the steam. So if I'm using the steam for a direct injection humidifier, then the steam's going into the atmosphere and we're not using that steam again. It's going into the airstream. So it yep. doesn't, it, there is no condensate with that steam. So we don't really have, I mean, there's a little bit of condensate, but we don't have to really collect that and do anything with it. Yeah, good okay. point. However, most steam applications, because we've spent a lot of money getting that water up to 212 degrees. Think about it. Your city water comes in, it's 35, 40, 45, 50 degrees. And we just spent a whole lot of money to get it up to 212 degree water, right? So we don't want to waste that energy. So we want to collect that steam. We also put chemicals in it to treat the water to keep from corroding the pipeline and keep from scaling things up. So we don't want to waste all that stuff that we just got done doing to the water. So we want to collect that water and bring it back to the boiler room. So the steam comes out of the coil and it's going to go through a steam trap. And the reason the steam trap is there is so we get all the energy out of the steam. So it condenses back into condensate. So we come out of the steam trap and we'll talk about servicing steam traps here in a couple of minutes because there's an art to doing that. And you collect the condensate and we want it to drain by gravity either back to the boiler room or in the case of a building where I can't get back to the boiler room easily, I drain it to a condensate receiver, just a big tank mm -hmm. that's open to the atmosphere. It's got a vent that goes to the outside world. And that tank has a pump on it. And then we, we pump the condensate from there back to the boiler room. Dealt with a couple of those tanks before where they, they had like a mechanical float installed mm -hmm. in them and the float kind of swings up. And once it gets to a certain point, the pump starts and it pumps it back to the main tank in the boiler room or into the boiler or straight into the boiler. Right. So depending on the system, how complex the system is, it may go back to the boiler room and go to a surge tank and it sits there in the surge tank until the boiler needs it. Yeah, um, And then the search tank will transfer it to the boiler as the boiler needs it. It may go back to a deaerator, which is another piece of equipment we stick in boiler rooms to deoxygenate or deaerate that water. We heat it up a little bit and we dry, you know, because we understand as we heat water, we drive the free oxygen out of the water. 
So that's what a deaerator does is it drives that excess oxygen out of the water and before we send it back to the boiler because oxygen in and of itself is corrosive. So anyhow, we make condensate and we got to get it back and we want to get it back in the most expeditious manner. So that's usually that condensate receiver and receivers are pretty simple. It's a tank with, like you said, it's got a float in it, float lifts up. When it gets full, it turns the pump on, pump, pumps the condensate back to the boiler room. It's that simple. Let me ask you this before you move on. Sorry, I just thought of something. So okay. there's, there's this one, I don't do a lot of steam at all. Like I have a like very minimal experience with steam. But there's this one condensate tank I know, and it's got a vent off of it. And the vent goes to the outside. And during the boiler operation, that vent is just always like, it's like every time I walk by it, I think of the theme song from Night Court. I don't I remember that old show, Night Court, that you mm-hmm. see <laughs> with, with Bull. Yes. <laughs> and, and I remember, like, when I see the steam coming out of there, that's all I think of is that theme song. And I guess maybe because there was some steam coming out of something in, in, when that show started, because it was like well, New, York, New York City. And, but there, it just, it's constant steam coming out. It just seems like, like, wow, that's a lot of steam that could be used inside the building. Like, what's going on here? Well, okay. So first of all, is it Feischstein or is it just vent? It's, okay. It's there's a, a difference. Yeah. It, it's a vent coming off the tank, but right. it's but, constant steam coming out of there. But when I, when, you know, when it's cold outside, yep. okay. If it's just atmospheric air coming out of there, cause as you put, as condensate goes into the tank, it's going to push air out. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that air that's going out, is it just warm air? Or is it really in true no, live steam? No, it's steam. If you put your hand on it, you'll get your hand burnt. Okay. So the key to tell the difference is how much velocity does it have coming out? If it has quite, velocity. Quite a bit. Okay. Then it's live steam. So chances yeah. are what's going on is you've got a steam trap that's blowing through someplace. Okay. So if you have a steam trap that's not working correctly, where the float is stuck open. Yeah. It'll blow live steam through the trap, which means you're not effectively transferring energy at your steam coil. You're wasting energy because you're not getting rid, you know, you're not absorbing all of that thousand BTUs per pound out of that steam. Hmm. Okay. So your coil's not working as well as it should. You're wasting, you're basically wasting energy. So this brings us kind of to our next topic, which is. How do you test a steam trap? You can't see inside of it. So how do you know it's working? Exactly. Yeah. How how do we know? Okay. So my favorite tool that I have in, in, in my garage that I take with me every time I'm going out to look at a steam system is a mechanic stethoscope. I bought it at like 12 for $12 at AutoZone. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've seen a mechanic stethoscope. It looks like a doctor stethoscope, except at the at the business end of it, it's got this long metal rod. And if you take that and you put the things in your ears and you take that metal rod and you put it against the body of the trap or on the pipeline in or out of the trap, you can hear the trap cycling inside. And you'll hear this click, 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 click. That's the trap opening and closing in response to condensate versus live steam hitting the trap. Hmm. And when you're listening to the trap, if you hear this continuously, guess what? It's blowing live steam. Yeah. It, no, it makes total sense because it can't just, because I'm thinking, man, if this condensate water is, yeah, it's hot, but why is that thing constantly got good steam velocity coming out of that vent and it makes right. a total makes total sense what you're saying is that steam is blown by the trap and getting into that tank right now the other possibility is okay so if we have different steam pressure applications all dumping into the same condensate receiver so if i look at my and one of the things that hopefully every every service guy that does steam Hopefully he has a copy of a, of a steam table with him because it's an invaluable little tool. And a steam table is just, it's a, it's a sheet of paper. It's got, it's the properties of saturated steam. And what it does is it gives us a gauge pressure and a saturation temperature 
And it also gives us volume and enthalpy and a whole bunch of other stuff. But the two things that are critical are gauge pressure and a resultant saturation temperature. So if I look at 15 PSI G steam, and I've got a steam table in front of me, as reason I know what these numbers are. I'm not that good that I don't have them committed to memory. <laughs> so 15 pounds steam pressure is 249.76 degrees Fahrenheit. So if I look at a boiler and it's making 15 PSI G steam, and I go up and check the temperature of that steam line coming out of the boiler, I'm going to be roughly 249.76 degrees is the temperature of my steam coming out of that boiler. Okay. And if everything's right with the world, any place I check in that pipeline, I'm going to be real close to that saturation temperature. So when I go through my trap, I'm not really, I'm giving up a whole lot of energy in, in the way of BTUs per pound. Okay. I'm giving up, you know, a total of about 1100 BTUs per pound. And I'm going to lose a little bit of that temperature. Okay. But because it's still pressurized, the temperature is still going to be a little bit above 212 degrees. So what's going to happen is if I have 249 degree water, remember water boils at 212 degrees at atmospheric pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if I've got a little bit of pressure on top of that water, because I'm, I'm in that condensate return line and it's got a little bit of pressure on it, it's not going to drop to 212 degrees. What's going to happen is as soon as I take the pressure off that water, it wants to flash some of that to steam. So if I have multiple pressures coming into a condensate return tank, when they drop into that tank, since that tank is vented to atmosphere, that water is going to try to flash. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So when it flashes, we make flash steam. Now, you're right. I should reclaim that flash steam. And for most service guys, the thing to understand is, yeah, you got some flash steam in there. And it's something that they could talk to their building owner, but, you know, whoever they're working for to say, hey, you know, you really ought, you really shouldn't be wasting that. You should be doing something with it. But more than likely, unless you've got multiple steam pressures dumping into the same receiver, you're not going to have flash steam because all the condensate returns are all going to be at the same approximate pressure. So you're not going to get flash steam. Okay. Properly designed steam system that's been properly engineered. The engineer is going to do his job and he's going to take those various pressures into flash tanks to capture that flash steam and reuse that energy someplace else. Because you don't want to waste it. Oh, 100%. Yeah, you don't. So, I mean... Those are a couple of reasons why that could be happening. So let, let's go back to the, the steam trap and how we're going to go. You were talking about the stethoscope and, and then how we're going to service these things and know if they're working. Right. So the first thing to do is listen to your traps. Just take stethoscope and listen to them. Now, you can get a lot more high tech. I'm sure you've seen ultrasonic listing devices for leak detection on refrigeration. I have not used one yet, no. Okay, but, I've, but I've, they're I've, out I there. Know, I, yeah, I know of them, yeah. Yeah, you can use that same device to listen to a steam trap. You put it up against the trap, and you listen to the trap. If you're in a really noisy environment, the ultrasonics work better than the stethoscopes do. Because it's easier to hear. Different traps have different sounds. Okay, because there's a lot of different style traps. There's, there's the bellows trap that is on, you know, your typical cast iron radiators. We have floating thermostatic and floating thermostatic is by and large the single most popular steam trap out there that's what's probably on 90 percent of the coils okay um it's big you know big huge hunk of iron and the way to tell if it's a thermostatic a floating thermostatic trap is the inlet and outlet's always on the same side you know inlet goes in the top outlet comes out the bottom on the same flat face of the trap and it looks like this kind of big d-shaped body they do make some straight through floating thermostatic traps. They're, they're a little bit weird looking, but they do make a straight through version. So if you got piping limitation or uh, you don't want to do that C-shaped or D-shaped trap piping connection, you can get a straight through for floating thermostatic. They also make what's known as an inverted bucket. Inverted buckets 
it's just like the name implies. Inside there, there's an upside down bucket. Okay. And the it raises and lowers inside there to let the let the condensate out. Now, generally, where you see inverted bucket traps is end of main drips. So in a steam in a steam piping system, we have steam running down a hallway. How far does it go down the hallway? 10 feet, 50 feet, 100 feet. Every 100 feet, I want an end of main drip trap, okay, to catch condensate and keep that steam nice and neat, nice and pretty and dry going down that pipeline. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. When I change directions, okay, so the steam main goes down the hallway and now it's going to go up through the shaftway to get up to the upper floors of the building, right? At the base of that riser, I want a steam trap. Even if it's only 15 feet from the boiler room to that riser, I want a steam trap at the base of that riser. Because guess what? Water doesn't run uphill. Plumbing 101, water doesn't run uphill, right? Yeah. Okay. So the steam's going to have enough velocity. It'll carry some of that water vapor up. But eventually the water vapor is heavy enough, it's going to fall back down. And you want someplace for it to go. So you want a drip leg at the bottom of that riser for that condensate to pool in and a trap to drain it off. And a inverted bucket trap works fine in that, in that location. You use an F and T, but a bucket works just as well because you don't have a modulating load. When I look at steam utilization and I'm, what I'm doing with steam out in the building, if I've got modulating valves, okay, which are real common, I want floating thermostatic traps because they will handle and they will react to varying loads they'll handle that real itty bitty load and they'll handle the big load okay because they're they're a reactionary they're a modulating type trap bucket traps don't do that bucket traps like live like steam on them and the same pressure all the time there are also thermostatic disc traps and impulse traps and there's a whole bunch of other ones that aren't very common if you do a lot of industrial and i don't know Everybody that's listening to us, if they do a lot of industrial, they may see some of the thermo disc traps. And you know how a clickson works for high limit on a furnace, right? Yeah, just the bimetal. Yeah, that's exactly what a thermostatic, what a thermo disc trap is. It's basically a little bimetal element inside the body, and that little bimetal element reacts to steam temperature when it cools off. It lets condensate out. It warms up, sees live steam, warms up, closes off again. And that's what you can hear when you put this. Stethoscope. I, I can't say that word. <laughs> Stethoscope. <laughs> that's what you hear when you put that against it, is you hear yes. opening and closing. You're hearing that opening and closing, and you're hearing mm-hmm. that click, 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 click. And if you um, don't hear that click, 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 then chances are it's not working properly. Correct. Now, and then you can, if you can open it up and clean it out, you can replace, can you replace parts in it, whatever? Yeah, can you, yeah. Okay. So all the different guys that manufacture traps, and, you know, there's, there's Armstrong, there's Spirex Sarko, there's Hoffman, there's Spence, there's, you know, there's a, a litany of them. And by the way, it's not the Armstrong I work for, it's the other Armstrong. The steam traps themselves all have repair kits for them. And the repair kit is basically a body gasket. And basically you take the cover off the thing and you're replacing that entire cover. You're replacing the the cover, you're replacing the float and you're replacing the gasket. And it's 30 minute repair. But the thing that service guys really need to understand is steam systems are a serviceman's best friend because they require somebody to service the system you know if you think about it hot water systems just kind of run chilled water systems run i mean the chiller takes maintenance but they just kind of do right steam systems however you really got to work at them there's a lot of moving parts in a steam system and they're all little bitty and they're all scattered throughout the system you know the boiler's one piece of it but when you get out to the system at every coil You got a steam trap sitting there. You got to check every one of those steam traps every year. To give you an idea, there's a 
company in Michigan, and I won't, I won't pick on them. They did a steam trap survey and it cost them about eight or $10,000 for a steam trap survey for somebody to come in and test all of our traps. And they had a bunch. They found over 50% of the traps in the building had failed. Interesting. They repaired all of their steam traps. They cut their energy bill by 42%. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So they instantly paid for their steam trap survey. Oh, yeah. No okay. kidding. So, so, they, so they, weren't, they weren't having these checked on an annual basis prior to this? You know how it works with building owners. Building owners sometimes, financially, building owners look at building maintenance and some building owners are really good about spending money for maintenance and other ones, eh, they put it off. You know, it's not a priority to them. You know, it's, it's a bigger priority to paint the lobby of the building because that's what people see when they walk in the building, right? Yep. Now, you and I, because we deal with service and maintenance of equipment, we don't like building owners that do that because it's bad for all of us. It just, you know, it, it, it leads to bad things happening at three o'clock in the morning when it's colder than the devil outside, right? Yep. We want them to spend the money on the maintenance because it's it really it's better. You don't freeze up buildings and you don't have problems and you don't have tenant complaints and all that. But some owners don't think that way. Oh, lots lots of owners don't think that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so with a steam system, we really want to make sure we drive home. Look, Mr. Owner, not maintaining your steam system will cost you lots and lots of money in operating costs because you're wasting energy. And you're not getting the heating out of your coils. If you have a steam trap on a uh, sterilizer that's not working, guess what? You can't sterilize medical equipment. It won't work. You can't get it hot enough for long enough to get the sterilizer to do its job. So, you know, hospitals are real keen on this. Okay. They're real keen on understanding why steam systems have to work. The company that I told you about that spent a lot of money on a, on a steam trap survey, they were a pharmaceutical manufacturer, big manufacturing plant, and they were putting so much money into manufacturing their product, they forgot about the maintenance of their building. And they use steam in the manufacturing process. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy how, because I do pharmaceutical work too, and it's crazy how they even they got away with not doing this for so long because you think the steam temperature wouldn't be up to par and it would be affecting their process. What happens is the steam temperature's up there. They're just having to run the boilers harder. I see. Because the boilers yeah. are running, they're running at 100% fire all the time. Yeah. And they're getting the temperature, but they're, they're getting it at a cost because they're not getting the cycles that they should. They're spending a lot more on water treatment. They're you know, the, the equipment's not performing as well as it should. Their throughput, you know, yes, they could process pharmaceuticals, but they couldn't process them at the rate the plant was designed for. So, gotcha. you know, if they're designed to crank out 10,000 pounds of product an hour and they could only crank out 5,000 pounds, nobody thought about, well, let's go check the steam trap and make sure we're actually able to heat the product up fast enough. So, those are things that guys have to pay attention to. So, the, you know, a good service guy, should be talking to his owners that he's working for going, hey, look, I know you got a steam system in your building. Let me check your steam traps every year. Here's what it's going to take. It's going to take me a day or two days or three days, you know, whatever. They should know how many traps are in the building. When you're doing the maintenance on the air handler and it's a steam coil, you should be checking the trap. You know, yeah. simple things yeah. like that. Making sure that the vacuum breaker actually works. Try to pull the coil into a vacuum. I mean, most service guys carry a vacuum pump, right? If you valve the coil off and you pull it into a vacuum, the vacuum breaker ought to open at a couple inches of vacuum. So you really shouldn't be able to pull a coil into a vacuum. Ah, okay. So that's that. So you'd have to just shut the steam down to the coil, find an opening that you could get your vacuum pump on, try to pull the, the coil into a vacuum. And if it doesn't, 
the vacuum breakers working. I've taken and, and some of those the, they've been you know easy enough to get to, and there's not an easy place to hook my vacuum pump to. I just take mm-hmm. the vacuum breaker off and put it you know hook it up to a refrigeration hose and pull a vacuum on the on the vacuum breaker and see if it opens. Ah, uh, okay, that okay, you know, cool. Yep, just depends on you know depends on the application, how big the coil is, whether you can get to the vacuum breaker easily. If it's a heat exchanger, it's easy because the vacuum breaker is usually right on the side, so you can just spin it off and test it. If it's an air handler coil, depending on how big the coil bank is. You know, it may be 10, 12 feet in the air, and you may not be able to get to it real easily. That's where you kind of have to use your best judgment as to what makes the most sense. You know, looking for steam leaks. Steam leaks are one of those kind of things that cost a lot of money. So, you're, you know, you're looking at valve packings and, you know, snugging up the valve packings as you go to make sure that you're not leaking steam. You know, repack the valves. You know, gate valves, you know, I don't know how many guys operate gate valves every year like they're supposed to. My guess is a lot of them don't get operated. Mm-hmm. And when you go to try to operate them, they aren't going to move. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> I've, yeah, I've been around some. Yeah. And so if you exercise them every year or a couple of times a year, guess what? That doesn't happen. Yeah, for sure. And so when we look at service, Part of our job as, you know, as, as being the service professionals, right, is we're the ones that, sur- that are supposed to advise our customers, hey, you need to be doing this. This is what should be done on your building every year because that's why they hire us because we're the professionals, right? At least that's what we, you know, that's what we keep telling them is you hire us because we're the guys that know this stuff. This stuff. We pretend we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, Gary, you and I have been at this for for a while. We know there are A-level mechanics, B-level mechanics, and then there's DNF-level mechanics. We all want to be that A and B-level mechanic. At least that's what we should strive to be, right? Yep. Well, part of being that A-level mechanic or that B-level mechanic how do you distinguish, how do you differentiate yourself from the next guy? Is you know the system, you know what needs to be done to maintain it. And when you can sit down and explain it to an owner, hey, Mr. Owner, these are things that'll cost you money in the long run, in energy. Now, all of a sudden, it starts to make sense. Steam piping, insulation on steam piping. I don't know how many buildings I've gone into and guys have done piping repairs. They've repaired valves, whatever. And they take the insulation off and nobody goes back and puts it back on. Why? I have no idea why. I, it, it boggles my mind. Okay. One, there's a safety issue. The steam's hot. Yes. Yep. Okay. You know, I mean, we said it at 15 PSIG, it's two, almost 250 degrees. I don't know about you, but I don't want to lean my arm against a 250 degree pipe. That hurts. <laughs> You know, it'll take the hide off of you. So we got to think about those kind of things. We got to tell owners, hey, you want to save some energy? Keep your steam piping insulated. You know, I've gone in and one of the things that used to be real commonplace was steam pressure reducing stations never used to be insulated. And now there are companies out there that make removable insulation jackets the jacket goes around the steam pressure reducing station or the control valve, and it's got Velcro on it. And you Velcro the cover back in place. They're wonderful. Yeah, that's, that's a great idea. There's actually a company, um, Evergreen, that makes, you can buy the stuff in, in rolls, like you buy duct insulation. And they sell you the rolls of Velcro and you staple all this stuff. And you can build your own insulation blankets with this stuff great product and and it's it's simple anybody can do it so you know there's ways of doing things like that to help your owner save money and to help them operate their steam plant more efficiently Mm -hmm. so steam traps leaks insulation you said you said another good one oh the vacuum breaker so these are all good things to check and then obviously Hopefully, if the steam system is uh, 
or if the customer wants it to run well, they're going to have to Im- implement their own chemicals. This the chemicals are not something that a, an HVAC technician or a heating technician should usually have to take care of. At least in my world, it's we have chemical companies that come in and, and add the chemicals. And and I agree. For most service most service guys aren't going to do water treatment. They're going to recognize that there's a water treatment system there, and if they happen to walk past and see the treatment barrels empty, they ought to be saying something to somebody. But, you know, by and large, that's a separate entity that's taking care of it. But, you know, the thing is, the HV, the service guy and the water treatment guy ought to know each other. Oh, yeah. ought to be talking. Yep. Because the service guy's out there in the building knowing what's going on with the steam system, knowing what's going on with the condensate return units. And he should be talking to the water treatment guy saying, hey, I'm seeing this problem out here. So that the water treatment guy can help him address that problem. You know, he may need to make some adjustments because if the water treatment guy doesn't know what's going on out in the building, not a clue as to what's going on. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, we, we've touched on some good points here. So is there anything that you want to close us out with? Another, maybe like an important tip or, or something to do with steam that is maybe a misconception, maybe something that you think is overlooked in, in a lot of cases besides what we talked about, Any, anything like that? Well, what I will tell, what I tell people is steam is not difficult. It follows one really basic premise. High pressure goes to low pressure. It's really simple. And, and I didn't come up with that one. I, I can't take credit for that thought. Um, my good friend Dan Hollian came up with that uh, years. Dan has written a book called, actually, a couple of them called "The Lost Art of Steam Heating." I have that book. I just haven't really got into it like I, I wanted to, but I've got a copy of it. Yeah, if you if, since you have a copy of it, when you get a chance, sit down and read it. It's a great read. If you've read any of Dan's books, you know he has a very lighthearted way of writing. It's not written in engineer speak. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he writes for service guys. Yeah. His website is, is a wealth of information on dominantly low pressure residential steam heating systems. Okay. But if you don't have a cop for everybody that's listening, if you don't have a copy of Dan's book, I don't get anything for telling you to go buy Dan's book. I wish I did, but I don't go buy a copy of Dan's book, Lost Art of Steam Heating. It is a great read. Gives you a lot of really cool history of steam heating systems. And if you start looking at it the way Dan does and appreciating the art that goes into a finely installed system, and a well-built piece of equipment, you really, really get into steam heating because it is really some cool craftsmanship. Yeah, it's it's for sure that it's it's been a book that's been that I purchased to read up on. I just, I, man, it's just the time <laughs> the time thing is just like okay. Every time I sit down to to look at something, it's like you got to get up and do something else. So, I, trust anyway. me, I get it. I think I've bought three or four copies of it because people keep liberating it from my office. Oh, oh, that's nice. Well, <laughs> you know, it's one of those kind of things. I'm glad people actually take it because what it means is. They're learning. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. so I, you know, not that I like spending money on buying books, all buying the same book over and over again, but you know what? It's okay. They're getting something out of it. And that's okay by me. Cool. All right. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. And we, we've went through a lot of, we could talk about this forever. And because uh, there's so many facets to this, but. I think we'll call this one for now, Tony, because we've we've got to a point where we've ended on a good note. Going to get this book by Dan, and uh, hopefully everybody can further their education with Steam uh, going forward with it. Thanks, thanks, man. I appreciate it, Gary. As always, it is a pleasure and an honor to sit and talk with you. One of these days, I am going to make it to Canada, and we are going to meet face to face and go have a beer together. We'll do it. Let's do it, man. All right, Gary, thank you, sir. Have a wonderful evening, my friend. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Tony. All right. Thank you, Tony. I hope you guys have a better understanding of steam, how it's made, 
how it moves around a system and how it turns back to condensate and that condensate moves back down the line and ends up back at the boiler. And steam, like I said in the beginning, is a super cool way to heat a building. And it's good to understand it, even though you don't see it. Well, I don't see it very often. I see it a little bit, not a lot, but it's a very cool way and it's good to keep up on top of your knowledge. So if you ever come across it, guys, you have some base knowledge on how to troubleshoot and, and how to get around a system. Anyway, I'm out, guys. Thank you once again to the Master Group. Happy HVACing. Hope you enjoyed the show. Follow HVAC Know It All on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, and anywhere else Gary feels like popping up. This has been a Two Smokes and a Coffee production.